Now, this creature was moving at a, a leisurely kind of pace, and uh, it was moving on a straight line. And we all three of us watched it, and its movement was uh, very uh, smooth, it almost glided at a very slow pace across the water, causing little or no disturbance. Um, it gave the impression of, of swimming with uh, some flippers or that that would be much deeper down in the water. And we watched it, and I, a minute or so, I don't know how long it was, because we were kind of fascinated by the appearance of the thing. And uh, um, then, almost as a submarine submerging, it submerged, and it just gradually sank the, the head and uh, the, the leading section and the hump uh, submerged under the water. It's in Act 1, Scene 3 of Hamlet that the prince remarks to his friend, There are more things in heaven than earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Hackneyed the phrase may be, but true nonetheless. However, 20th century man, accustomed as he is to the trite clinical explanations and dismissals of the scientist, tends to scoff at reports of the unusual and the bizarre. While inexplicable phenomena appeal to the imagination, they seldom cause more than a ripple on the placid surface of human imperturbability. As a result, reports of monsters, where they exist, are treated as hoaxes, hallucinations, or an excess of the cup that cheers. Over the years, individual sightings have been conveniently discounted, and one can only speculate as to the number of people who did not care to invite a ridicule and so remained silent about what they'd seen. In April 1960, however, came a report which was not so easy to dismiss. In the course of an evening's fishing on Loch Ree on the Shannon, three priests, Father Quigley, Father Murray and Father Burke, saw and reported a strange aquatic creature, thus perpetuating a tradition of sightings on Loch Ree dating back to the 7th century. Well, on that particular evening, having had a day's fishing on the lake, having had our meagre supper, we went out for the evening rise, and it was a very calm evening. We were expecting uh, to do quite well because of the conditions. The lake was placid, and the light was good. We uh, left the shore at about half past eight, and remained stationary for about half an hour or more. And then, one of us, by the way, we were three in the boat, one uh, saw something uh, to which he uh, brought our attention. And there, afterwards, of course, we uh, discussed the... Uh, sighting and we agreed that we had the three of us independently seen much the same type of thing. In two sections there was a leading section and a following section it was evidently all the one creature and uh, the, follow the, the, f the, the forward section was a long thin uh, projection almost as Father Murray said like um, a swan's neck, but st stretching quite straight forward. And I'd say it was stretching at an angle of about 30 degrees to the water surface. And then after that there was uh, 
about two foot of water. I would estimate, I'd only have to guess. And then following that, there was this hump appearance. And the hump would have been about the same height out of the water, 18 inches to two feet. So that what was showing indicated that there was a much larger creature under the water than actually showed on the surface. Speculation as to the nature of the Lockery sighting ran the entire gamut from suggestions of an extinct plesiosaurus to a bang-up-to-date Russian miniature submarine. The importance of the report, however, stemmed from the fact that it involved a group of people, and an eminently respectable group at that. Six years before, another collective sighting had taken, taken place on Loch Fother near Clifton in County Galway. Two of the four people involved were Georgina Carberry and Anne Byrne. We had been fishing all afternoon and we came ashore to have tea. And we were about ten minutes sitting on the bank and I spotted an object which I took to be a man in the water and I told my friends. So we watched it coming towards us and as we did we couldn't account for what it was. This was about three quarters of a mile in the distance, I suppose. When we looked, we couldn't see him any man. Then we suddenly saw this awful big long object coming, swimming very leisurely towards us until it came quite near. And then we could see the big, huge, long neck and two big humps right over the water. Now the humps were not movable, they were quite steady over the water and he, it kept swimming down very, very leisurely towards us and we stayed perfectly still and we had the boat pulled up beside us because we were having a cup of tea and it was a most beautiful June evening. Actually it was so warm that the vapour was actually rising from the water. It was so hot all day. So it came so close is that I was the nearest to it and I stayed for quite a long time till it came in a few feet of me and I suddenly jumped then and the others jumped back and when we did it just flashed around a rock that was quite near us and it was then that we realised and had a good look at it that it had a thin shaped tail and it seemed to have all movement in its body and it had that kind of a bluey-green appearance. It reminded me of an uncooked lobster, the colour of it. And it had a huge shark-shaped mouth. Now, as regards eyes or ears or flappers or anything like that, I know we couldn't see any flappers underneath, but ears or eyes or that, I've no recollection because we were so taken up with the mouth and the humps and when it went round the rock it suddenly went down and in one flash it was right up at the island again I never saw anything could move as fast as it moved it was really extraordinary how quickly it could move now I always feel whatever it was coming after the fish in the boat because with that heat of the day it must have smelt the fish in the boat and was possibly coming to eat the fish in the, if we had stayed quite 
I still feel it would have got into the boat. But then again, maybe not. You're uh, an experienced fisherwoman. You've fished many times on Loch Father. Have you ever noticed in any of the fish that you caught any peculiar markings, any teeth markings or anything like that? No, there was nothing that ever I noticed on it, but I know one thing certain. We didn't go back to Loch Father to fish again for years and years and years. And then when we did return to fish on it, we always made sure we had a man in the boat with us. So it was a frightening experience? It was. It was an experience that really did frighten me because I was really terrified. We were all right. We had to go quite a good bit down the lake to moor the boat. And of course, at that time, it was all bicycles and we had four bicycles. And it was when I got on the bike, really, that the fear got gripped. Well, I just, just was got the delayed shock. But after that, I used to have nightmares every night of this awful thing. Seven level-headed, intelligent people had observed and reported two separate bizarre episodes. Both groups of witnesses were agreed on what they'd seen, but made no judgment as to the nature of the sightings. Significantly, both sets of descriptions were strikingly similar. At the time, our native monsters had long been overshadowed by their illustrious relative in Scotland. But on learning of these reports some years later, Captain Lionel Leslie was sufficiently impressed by the quality of the testimony to divert his attention from Loch Ness to this country. Well, I didn't think anything more of it until 1965. And I was with the Loch Ness expedition... Uh, uh, investigating and uh, we got a report from the Irish inland fisheries um, enclosing uh, a report from Father Quigley and two other priests from Loch Ree and so I was so very inter interested I went over to uh, uh, Dublin to interview him and uh, afterwards I was very um, impressed by it because it was so like what he told me was so like the Loch Ness monster only in miniature so I put a letter in the Irish Times asking if anybody else had seen anything like that and I got a letter from Reverend Alston and Clifton saying they'd got something there like that and so I went along there and met Miss Carberry there was also another lake there a uh, Loch Crowland near Clifton and the very interesting thing happened there with a Tom Keneally he was a, a man who'd lived there most of his life and a couple of years before he saw a, what he thought was some otters in this lake near his house when he got there he saw that it was an animal about 14 feet long uh, with a black shiny body uh, rising and sinking up and down. It was the same sort of creature as described by Miss Carberry. And he kept on doing this for about half an hour and he then it disappeared. He'd been warned by his parents when he was a boy never to go to this lake. Next year I came over with Lord Masserine, who was a prominent naturalist and uh, we had some put some dynamite, not on the in the lake itself, but on the rocks beside it. When the explosion went off, several of us saw this 
some move fluttering and moving went under the water a few minutes after the explosion like as if it had shifted something so we all presumed that it was the possibly the monster couldn't have been a fish no not a fish of that size in Lockfather because the fish in Lockfather are not that large not as large as what we saw or three or four divers went down in Lockfather but they couldn't see anything the only thing they did mention to me was that it had such a peculiar grassy bottom parts of the lake so whether this creature would live on that stuff or not I don't know then next year I came over and we put down a monster net a specially made one across part of narrow part of Loch Fadda then that winter I got a phone call from a local vicar very excited said the most extraordinary thing had happened there I better come over and see about it well this was another lake near Cladder Duff and there I interviewed Stephen Coyne. He said that he'd been standing on the hill just overlooking the little lake, which is only about a hundred yards long, when he saw a black object uh, swimming around. He went down with his dog and his small boy, and a dog started barking at it, and this creature opened its mouth and came swimming towards them. It was very much like the creature described by Miss Carberry. And uh, 20 years previously, he'd seen something of the same sort, only not nearly as clearly. So later that year, we had a big expedition, came over Mr. David James from head of the Loch Ness expedition and to a professor from, of biology from America and a journalist from the Chicago Sun and they set nets and they had this amphibious car that used to go on the water and on the road and they camped up at the lake for ages but nothing happened and then the lake was so muddy that they couldn't really make any headway with the nets at all nothing at all was caught References to monsters in Irish waters have an antiquity and a frequency which seem to have done little to improve their credibility. The earliest Irish cartographers left large blank areas on their maps bearing the legend, Here Be Monsters. Evidence exists in the field of folklore to suggest that if such phenomena do not exist, then it has been necessary to invent them. According to medieval historian Charlie Doherty, one of the earliest allusions to monsters in these islands is in Adhavnan's Life of St. Columba, and refers to Loch Ness. The description isn't really very clear or anything, but it's just that an animal takes a bite out of a man or kills a man in the river, and the saint then, I suppose, to show... The incident, the motif of the story is to show that the saint has power over the the animal, I suppose, to quell fear and so on. That is if the animal actually existed. But that's the earliest reference that I can think of at the moment. What about references in Ireland? Um... In Ireland itself, well, the lives of the saints are, I shouldn't say full of such instances, but a lot of the lives have references to animals in lakes or in river estuaries and so on. Uh, for example, the life of St. Shannon says that the island in the Shannon 
had been guarded by a monster sent by God to guard the island until the saint would come along to uh, take over the island. And the saint then comes eventually and quells the animal and he goes into the sea with great uh, rage and so on. And uh, his anger is such that his um, body temperature seems to rise and makes the boil, the, 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 uh, the water boil and so on. And the description says that he had a, a mane of a horse and a tail of a whale and that kind of thing. And that his the claws or feet were so well shod that they were able to sp- strike sparks out of the rocks and the ground and so on. So it looks like something that was put together just to create a monster image. Um, and of course other lives have similar uh, stories for particular reasons uh, that um, generally of course to show the power of the saint either the power of the saint's bell or his staff or whatever or generally the saint's power over a water animal or over water. In the light of such hagiographical evidence the author F.W. Holliday speculates that references to St. Patrick's banishment of snakes from this country refer not to the removal of the reptiles themselves but to the crushing of pagan serpent worship. If one accepts this hypothesis, of course, it's an easy leap to suggest that the revered serpents actually existed in the form of monsters in Irish lakes. How does an historian react to this theory? Whether well, I suppose early missionaries must have tried to eliminate all sorts of um, superstition and worship of various kinds of primitive uh, or pagan religion, various ideas, and that, I suppose, may, may be true. But there's one theory about the origin of that particular legend, and that says that, I think it's Kuno Meyer originally said that when the Norse came to Ireland, they presumably heard about Patrick and the great saints of Ireland and so on, and the name Patrick, when they heard it, sounded in their language uh, close to Padregger, destroyer of serpents. So the idea of Patrick as one who destroys serpents may have um, gained popularity through this misunderstanding or this etymology, which is merely a, a folk etymology. So the idea of Patrick, the person who banishes snakes from Ireland, may be a Norse idea. And whether it's earlier than that, of course, I don't really know. A vast corpus of material also exists in the field of folklore. The archives of UCD contain countless references to creatures of various kinds. I asked folklorist Dr. Seamus O'Cahan how far back such references went. The reports that we have in this archive here will go back to the earliest uh, documents that we have here, which would describe, say, conditions in Ireland around about the end of the last century, beginning of this century. And um, localised where? What parts of the country? Well, everywhere where there was water, <laughs> a viable stretch of water that would hold a monster, uh, you're, you're likely to find a report of, of uh, something having been seen there. Um, what names were these monsters known by? Well, first of all, I suppose I should say there were various sorts of monsters. You had your water cows, water horses, water cats, water dogs. Uh, then you had your water snakes and worms and paste and ulfaced. There's another description that they were given. Uh, monster eels of all kinds. I mean, you get lots of stories about eels coming out of, out of rivers, huge eels. And one tradition that's very common all over the country is that they come and they consume the corpses in graveyards, for example. And they have been seen allegedly putting their tails in their mouths and rolling across country from one one stretch of water to another. Um, the uh, these are the commonest names that are given to them. The water cats, in particular, I think, are associated with treasure, buried treasure, and the uh, 
the gu guarding buried treasure and that sort of thing. Um, what are the most common descriptions you've come across for these uh, sightings of these creatures? They're generally described as having horse's head and having horse's mane and having some sort of a, a series of many eyes around the head or around the neck. Are there many references to these creatures having uh, humps or serpent's heads or anything like that? You will find that as well, but uh, the commonest thing is a horse's head with the mane and eyes. This is the commonest description that's found in the manuscripts. There's an old lady lived to great old age of 90-something, and she used to tell us a story how, when she was a very young girl, that uh, out at Gowlon, where there are two lakes, one is bigger than the other and they're connected through a little river which runs under a little bridge and this old lady used to tell us how under the bridge when she was very very young a huge fish of some sort she said got caught under this little bridge going from one lake to the other now it was there and nobody knew what to do with it. They couldn't get it out, it was so large. So it just lay there, she said, until it rotted and all was left of it was the bones. That was the, and that's a long, long time ago. Scientists of necessity are a sceptical breed. In terms of monster reports, they're always alive to the possibility of hoaxes. They also tend to reject anecdotal evidence as, at best, unreliable, or at worst, deliberately misleading. I asked Dr Paddy Fitzmaurice of the Inland Fisheries Trust why this was. Mainly because of their training. Uh, they must have the body to be able to identify an animal. Uh, to go back to the last century in the British Museum, a number of animals were sent in which were composites of different animals, and the museum authorities designated names to them. So afterwards, they decided that they wouldn't identify the animals until they got the live animal. Uh, this posed problems as well, in that a dead animal was sent into them. The duckbill platypus from Australia, which is an extraordinary beast, made up, you would think it was made up of different parts of different animals. Uh, it, has, it lays an egg, it has web feet, and a duckbill. So they were very reluctant to give this a scientific name until they got the actual animal, which they subsequently did. Dr A.E.J. Went is another zoologist who's encountered the question. He too takes the official scientific line. Well, I think you can explain them away... Well, it depends where, of course, but you can explain them away in, in many ways. I think lighting and wind effects are often thought to be of uh, animal origin, this you can see quite frequently if you're on a calm day, for example, in a, just before dusk or just after dawn, you can often see these things that do look very much like animals. And um, I have seen personally when I was fishing for salmon off the northwest coast just at dawn, things that look like animals, rather large animals, and they turn out to be these almost whiffs of, uh, of uh, wind producing an effect which looks like a, lo a long eel and so on. Uh, monsters, of course, are nothing new. You see on the old maps, maps of Ireland, for example, 
around the coast you see monsters and I think this is inbred in humans to see things of that see things of that kind but what other explanations are there well you you can of course get uh, occasionally a group of ducks for example that produce uh, especially if you're long distance away uh, I can remember seeing in the Dublin Zoo for example when I was about 200 yards away I saw a group of ducks and I think if I'd been impressionable I would have thought it was a a long single animal and I think a lot of these uh, phenomena may well be due to uh, groups of birds, mainly birds I imagine, groups of birds uh, swimming in line or not necessarily in line but alongside one another to produce the appearance at, at distance of one single creature. By virtue of the fact that the otter is a, a land animal as well as an aquatic animal and can slip into the water the it can swim along with its head above the water. Uh, it sometimes is playful in the water. Now, if you can get a school of otters, and particularly from the line that you take from the school of otters, it may appear that they're in a line. Some of them, may, the front one may, for instance, swim with its head up, and the rest of them may just have loops of their body just showing above the water behind it, which makes it look as if it's a single animal. Uh, also, you could have the wakes of boats, uh, particularly in a lake like Loch Ness, which is quite long and narrow, uh, wake from a boat, the long wake going out in a V formation to the shore uh, can appear at the shore a long time after the boat has passed and uh, again you can extend that that when it hits the shore it puts another wave back out from the shore forming a, a V formation from the shore. But this is something that would only really take place in a, a narrow, a fairly narrow lake. Well the V formation uh, part of it, yes, and it would only happen in a narrow lake but again if you had a boat on a very calm water uh, we'll say at evening time it can put an awful long wake for a long way behind it even a, a boat that's under oars or one that has an outboard on it and again when you look at this in silhouette against the shoreline particularly at evening time it is very difficult to make out what it is Predictably Captain Leslie rejects such explanations as being rather trite Well no, every countryman knows an otter when he sees it he certainly couldn't mistake what Miss Carberry saw for an otter the, the wakes of ships, you can generally tell, it has to be in a large expanse of water, and when the ship goes by, it leaves these furrow waves, which, when the shadow gets behind them, it does look like monsters. Then there are logs and floating weed, but logs don't behave like in this fashion, moving around and jumping, sort of moving up and down all the time. What about wind eddies? Wind eddies, well, they'd, wind eddies wouldn't show something solid enough like this. As, uh, something that is really, uh, uh, an, you can see as an animal. I mean, some of these people have been very close to them. For instance, Stephen Coyne was standing, he said, within about ten feet of it. If we allow for the moment that these sightings cannot be easily explained away... We must then approach the tantalising question of identification. Unfortunately, it's an unrewarding area in the sense that those most qualified to evaluate, namely zoologists, are intent on total rejection of the phenomena, or at best on providing a list of definite non-starters. Amongst the converted, however, there's no shortage of theories. It might be a natural freak, um, like the lung, African lungfish, which can sub can last out the whole summers in hard-baked mud by suspended animation. 
these creatures might uh, do the same sort of thing in the peat. There are stories of them boring in the peat. And also they might uh, live on decaying organic matter. Dr. David Piggins, chief biologist of Salmon Research Trust, assured the author, Mr. Holliday, who wrote a book on the subject, that although there was no evidence for a large unknown fish predator had ever been brought to his notice, he agreed that a sediment feeder might be a possible. Well, if the lungfish can live all those months in the hard-baked mud, this creature might be able to go and live in a state of suspended animation in the peat. Oh, yes, there's, it's, there's something there, but I believe it's no ordinary beast. It's got something very extraordinary about it, which I believe we will... One day, there are a lot of things we don't know, like the powers of the water divino. One day, when science works in that direction, it'll find out about it. And I believe that eventually they'll find out about these creatures, which are not in the ordinary branch of zoology. In terms of Loch Ness, the popular imagination has seized on the possibility of the survival of prehistoric aquatic creatures. Realistically, however, what are the chances of such a throwback surviving? We have the experience of the, the coelacanth. Now, the coelacanth was known from fossil records and goes by quite a, a long time in, in terms of geological time. And when the coelacanth was eventually taken and compared to the fossil record, there was very little difference. Uh, other animals that existed uh, in a like period may have changed enormously through evolutionary process. So it's an impossible one to say what they could be. Um, one of the popular uh, theories has it that it might be uh, an extinct aquatic reptile called the plesiosaur. Do you see any arguments for or against this? Uh, well, in, in an Irish context, again, I, I would find it very difficult to accept that plesiosaurs exist in Irish waters. Uh, most of our lakes just don't have the depth. Again, in comparing it with Loch Ness, Loch Ness goes to about 900 feet. The maximum depth we have in any of our lakes here is about 200 feet. What about the temperature? Well, again, they would have temperature problems being a, a cold-blooded animal. Uh, the four-degree temperature that we would have in our waters at winter time would, unless the animal hibernated, it would certainly tell against it. I don't think that they, uh, they can be any of these prehistoric reptiles, large prehistoric reptiles. I think that there's good evidence that they died out so long ago that I can't believe that they could have survived, even individuals. If they survive today, it must mean that there's a breeding well, there's a breeding stock until comparatively recently, and I would have thought then you would have had considerable numbers of these, and they would have been seen rather than indi individuals. It's true, of course, that an individual could live to a ripe old age, but uh, I imagine that uh, uh, some of these very big reptiles, they must, if they lived a hundred years, it's probably as much as they did live. And of course, in, when it comes to these countries here. You know, north of what I would call the uh, ice line, the ice, last ice age you know, must have wiped them out because uh, reptiles themselves have temperatures, I think I've said already, have temperatures which are roughly the same as the air temperature surrounding them and certainly they couldn't have, reptiles couldn't have survived the ice age and I doubt very much whether they could survive even more moderate te temperatures uh, than was produced in the, uh, in the, uh, during the Ice Age. 
there is one, suge- well, one suggestion that the monsters, a number of places, the monsters consisted of huge eels. Um, well, uh, it's very difficult for me to believe that uh, these huge eels could uh, could grow to the size that they're t- that people are talking about. Of course, the, the congas grow up to six or eight feet, but we're not talking about six or eight feet. We're talking about 20, 30, 40 feet. That, this is one of the difficulties. Uh, the num- Every time I look at the number of candidates, I always think each one seems to be more impossible than the, uh, than the other. Nonetheless, the inescapable fact is that detailed scientific investigations at Loch Ness have turned up convincing evidence in the form of underwater photographs and sonar soundings. They were done with a large underwater stroboscopic camera combined with sonar. Well, the sonar detected a large moving object from which the fish, shoals of fish, were fleeing. They tracked this object as it passed 20 feet from the camera, which was at 40 feet depth, and it snapped the hindquarters and flipper and part of a tail of some enormous beast with a rough skin, greenish-brown. The flipper was about six feet long. Two years later, they got the head and body in detail, though it was rather blurry owing to the peat content of the lake. It was examined, these photos, by zoological centres in the UK, America and Europe and shown in the House of Commons. Dr. Zug, curator of Smithsonian Institute in Chicago, said, I believe these data indicate the presence of large animals in Loch Ness, but insufficient to identify. They could be very much easier to carry out these experiments in the Irish lakes, which are much smaller, and and the water is clearer. What, if anything, would persuade Irish scientists to examine the subject more closely? Perhaps a personal encounter? Oh, I think I'd go and investigate it, certainly. Uh, I'd go and investigate it. But um, I wouldn't go and investigate the thing on the basis that it must be a monster. I'd say, what is it? I think this is what the scientists are doing. They say, if does this thing exist, what is it? Whereas a lot of people have gone out to prove there is a loser monster. Uh, I think a lot would depend on the individual that uh, had made the sighting. I think he would uh, examine his conscience very carefully first before he would mention it to anybody and try and explain it away through any of his known natural phenomena before he would do anything about it. But uh, certainly I would say that it would take uh, a scientist to get a serious study uh, underway here in Ireland to see if we have monsters. Do you think it's a, it would be a worthwhile study? Uh, I don't. I just don't know. At the present moment in time, do you think there is sufficient body of evidence to merit a, a scientific investigation, a full-scale one? Well, on the knowledge that I have of the sightings, I, I wouldn't say so. Captain Leslie is, however, still optimistic that there's something to be found if the will and the know-how is there. Oh no, there are reports still going on. I still get them from Clifton. Uh, that. Um Mr. Keneally, he had a a sighting only two or three years ago, and at the same time there was another one in Lake Shanakiva. Oh, no, they're still getting reports of... They're still sighting over there. 
So you think it would be worthwhile conducting another expedition, possibly? Well, not on our, not on our uh, the way we did it last time. We'd need more sophisticated equipment. Uh, more scientific and equipment. And it would need more money and more time. You see, the Loch Ness one, they go on for months on end there. They have a change of team the whole time, going on a whole summer. Do you think it would be easier to turn up creatures in Irish lakes than in Loch Ness? Oh, very much so. Because Loch Ness, you've got, a, I think, 22 miles long and, and 900 feet deep. And uh, very much easier in Loch Ree and, and the, some of the smaller lakes. In Loch Ree, one could there's a deep place in the middle where it goes down to a hundred feet, and I th- think that would be the place to suspend these cameras. You see, it's like setting a trap for an animal. You leave the camera there, and it works automatically. The sonar, uh, when the sonar sees something, um, registers a large moving object, it sets the camera shutters going. It's a very intricate mechanism. And it only needs some local person with the know-how to look after it. While conceding that if given acceptable evidence, he might modify his position, Dr. Wendt remains unrepentantly sceptical. I was a student in Norway. There are monsters in Norway. You hear stories of them. I don't think they've uh, uh, been so popular as, uh, as, as Nessie. Of course, Nessie's been very popular, but the Scots have made a lot of money out of it right, by bringing tourists and so on. Uh, but there are, there are certainly monsters elsewhere referred to by various people, not so successful from the tourist point of view. Perhaps we should, perhaps we should find them, get uh, a tourist to come and see a monster in Loch Ness, in Loch um, Ree or Loch Fadder or somewhere like that, even if we have to put up a plastic one to, uh, for the job. But Georgina Carberry is just as unrepentantly convinced. I don't think under any circumstances that it was anything but something very unusual that I don't think has been seen by anybody uh, in La Fadis since we saw it and then this other man that saw it some years later. But it definitely was uh, something very unusual because I'm so used to the sea, I know what purposes are, I know what um, those other fish, that otters. otters, and then seals. My God, I've seen more seals because I do a lot of sea fishing and I know what they are like. But I've never, never seen anything like this. And in no way have I any doubt that, but that there's a monster up there somewhere. <laughs> 